Hi, this is Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. And for this latest season of Crime Beat Chronicles, we wanted to highlight a series from the Roanoke Times that was first reported and produced in 2018 by journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. This is the second episode that you're about to hear. So if this is your first time with this season of the show, jump back uh, an episode before getting much further into this one. In the spring of 2015, a five-year-old child went missing in Dublin, Virginia. When his body was discovered days later in the family's septic tank, the mother was put on trial both by the court system as well as social media, where misinformation, accusations, and vengeance-fueled comments spread unchecked. It's a truly tragic story, but Roanoke Times reporters Jacob Dimmitt and Robbie Korth went to tremendous lengths to capture a well-rounded narrative that explores the way a community ultimately failed one of their own, while also touching on broader implications like the effects of Facebook, the stigma of drug addiction in rural America, and the distortion of facts. Like I said a moment ago, uh, this is the second of what will ultimately be seven episodes releasing every week, so make sure that you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed, you can explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We'll make sure to include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we thoroughly encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. So thank you so much for listening. And here is the second episode, Pulaski's Own which was first produced in 2018 by Roanoke Times journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. Noah Thomas's family had lived in Pulaski County for five years by the time he died. His mother, Ashley White, was one of Pulaski County's own. She wasn't a native, but she was born just across the New River in Radford, Virginia. She'd lived in the area her entire life. She looks, talks, and really just is the prototypical Pulaskian. It's a proud community that's taken some lumps, but still celebrates its heritage, especially when it comes to trains. Milton Brockmeyer was a local dentist with a somewhat unhealthy obsession with locomotives. So much that in 1955, he and a few buddies began building, by hand, a model train of his hometown built completely to scale. It took them over 40 years, but eventually grew 80 feet long. It depicts downtown Pulaski circa 1955 in unbelievable detail. Every warehouse is shaped exactly as it is in real life, complete with business signs. Even the burned-out remains of a building on the edge of town are depicted exactly as they were that year. The model lived in Brockmeyer's basement until his death in 2010. Then it was moved to the town's history museum, commonly known as the Ratcliffe. We asked John White, Pulaski's unofficial historian, to give us the tour. Welcome to the Ratcliffe. We ask you to do only two things. Number one, sign the guest book. And number two, have a good time. This model is weirdly fascinating. It blew us away with its sheer size, accuracy, and attention to detail. If you bend down really close, you can see a dairy farmer hauling a truck full of cows just outside of downtown. There are dogs running around Jackson Park and firefighters goofing off outside the station. There's a Kroger and a Belk, billboards and street signs. The model depicts this area's boom years. The streets are full of little miniature cars and the parks are full of playing children. The mountains leading up away from town are dotted with stately-looking homes. The parking lot to the train depot is littered with luggage as travelers go to and fro. 
All the towering factories appear to be bustling, especially General Chemical Foundry, one of the most recognizable buildings in town. There's also Pulaski Mills Textile Factory, and smoke rising above the Coleman Furniture Plant. Of course, everything depicted in the model revolves around the railroad tracks. Historically, John says that's why Pulaski exists at all. First, there was a train stop, then a water tower for the visitors, then a hotel and stores. For generations, that's what supported the economy here. Manufacturers, American manufacturers, clamored to be in Pulaski so they could take advantage of the cheap labor pool and nearby transportation. The diorama doesn't paint Pulaski as more than it ever was. It shows a small factory town nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but it's a happy place. From the Roanoke Times newsroom, this is Septic. I'm Robbie Korth, reporting with Jacob Demet. Most of the same buildings are there when you walk outside the Ratcliffe Museum today, but the details couldn't be more different. The Dalton Theater, once a town landmark, is entirely empty office space. The storefronts that John said once lined a bustling commercial district are either empty or underutilized. A pawn shop now sits right across from the county courthouse. It's one of the biggest businesses in town. The train depot is still there, but the tracks no longer have passenger traffic. Instead, there's an old caboose parked outside for kids to play on. The building has been converted into a bike shop and community meeting space, where local officials gather every time they're ready to announce a new company coming into town. That's been happening more often recently, but still not enough to keep up with the steady drumbeat of factory closures. The general chemical plant buildings have been torn down, leaving behind a contaminated brownfield. We asked John about some of the other factories we saw in the model. Duke Furniture turned into a row of industrial buildings. Appalachian Power Shop Building, empty, but would make a great brewery, he says. Pulaski Motor Building turned into a Verizon call center. Pulaski Mills burned down years ago. And of course, there's Gem City Junk. Yes, that building is still there. That is the last building extant of the old Pulaski Iron Company. It is still there. It is for sale. Jacob, here's your chance to invest (laughs) in the town of Pulaski. Pulaski had built its economy around blue-collar manufacturing jobs. Suddenly, those jobs were gone, and this community changed forever. John says Pulaski lost 3,000 jobs in the downturn. That's unbelievable for a town of 9,000 people. I want to let that soak in for a minute. That's one job lost for every three people living in the town. But keep in mind, some of those laid-off workers did commute from other places. According to the most recent census, nearly 18% of Pulaski County residents have a bachelor's degree or higher, the median household income is $47,000, compared to a 52000 national average. 15% of residents live in poverty. And that void has created all sorts of other issues across Pulaski County. Here's John White. Keep in mind, John's sort of a perpetual optimist. He loves this community and deeply believes it's making a turnaround. You don't lose three or 4,000 jobs uh, and, and not have that ripple throughout the community. Um, and, and I think that's what we've got to deal with now. We, we're about 9,000 people, but the demographics have, have changed a bit. And we're older and poorer. Uh, wow, much like the rest of Southwest Virginia, right? And so it's not unique to us, but it's a problem we've got to solve. You know, to me, dealing with that 
is getting to the fundamental question. Uh, I think that uh, you know many people would like to see us beautified place and clean up stuff, and, and that's fine. I, I, I'm all for it, uh, but it doesn't really get at the root problem, which is this incredible uh, commercial industrial transformation and the ripple effect that it's had through the community. Do you think there's a connection between the economic distress and the drug epidemic that we've seen more recently? Not just here, but... Everywhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think anytime you've got significant economic uh, peril, uh, you're going to have people seeking to escape. Uh, and whether you live in some town in industrial West Virginia in the north or up in the northeast where people have lost a lot of manufacturing jobs or out in most any rural community across the country where people are abandoning small towns and moving to cities to find work, you're going to find the means by which you can escape, whether it be through opioids or whether it be through alcohol or whatever your drug of choice is. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that the saddest part of that is that uh, we, we, we haven't recognized it enough nationally uh, to see that it, it is a problem not of individual weakness. It's a problem of social distress. And until we recognize that and put the necessary resources into it to recognize these people addicted. They're not bad people. They're simply people who are struggling to survive and make sense of a reality that they're faced with. The death of traditional industry has been painful here. And we need to recognize that pain, acknowledge it, and help people through it. And then we need to move on. We need to look ahead. Noah's family certainly fits the blue-collar mold. Paul Thomas, the boy's dad, worked at a plastics factory that makes cups for yogurt containers. He took home $300 a week, or about $15,600 a year, according to his application for a public defender. Ashley, Noah's mom, was a waitress, according to her own application. This poverty wasn't addressed explicitly in the trial, but it was rumbling in the background the entire time. So was Ashley's history of drug abuse, which came up over and over again. The prosecutors talked about it during the trial. Ashley was asked about it when she testified. The judge made references to it, delivering his decision. There was no evidence Ashley was on illegal drugs at the time of Noah's death, but that didn't stop her former drug use from becoming a centerpiece of the accusations against her both in the courtroom and on Facebook. We're not going to sugarcoat this here, mainly because Ashley didn't herself during the trial. She was a recovering drug addict when Noah died. She did sign up for counseling to help get clean around the time she became pregnant with Abigail, his younger sister. She was prescribed Suboxone, which is kind of like methadone. It's a medication designed to treat opioid dependence. It stimulates opioid receptors in the brain enough that the person doesn't experience withdrawal, but at the same time doesn't feel high. It's a somewhat controversial treatment, but a lot of scientists and doctors are all for it. Suboxone is easy to abuse, so doctors typically watch these patients closely. When Ashley became pregnant, she was told to stay on the medication. Essentially, the thinking is that it's better to keep a mother on the drug so she doesn't fall off the wagon during pregnancy, even if that means the child will be born with Suboxone's active drug, buprenorphine, in their system. That's what happened with Abigail, Noah's younger sister born six months before his death. 
She was born with a condition known as neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS. This condition was brought up a lot during the trial, as prosecutors allege parental negligence. We don't want to minimize this. NAS is a condition where a baby is born addicted to drugs. It leads to serious developmental problems, both as a baby and later in life. To be clear, this is not good, and it's more common than you probably think. In 2016, 1% of Virginia newborns had neonatal abstinence syndrome. That's up 21% from the previous year. Nationally, one study found that babies born addicted to some sort of drug rose by 383% between 2000 and 2012. The problem is especially bad in the Appalachian region of Virginia. The New River Health District, which contains Pulaski County, has more than four times the statewide average of babies born with NAS. It seems strange to us that doctors would recommend a medical treatment that causes babies to be born addicted to drugs. We asked Jennifer Wells about it. She's an OBGYN and a psychiatrist who runs a program in nearby Roanoke that's similar to what Ashley joined. To be clear, Wells has never met or treated Ashley, so she's speaking generally about this kind of drug treatment program designed for pregnant mothers. We're in the midst of a crisis in the United States of America, right? It is a major problem. Opiate addiction is a major problem without a simple answer. Do I think that buprenorphine is the answer? No. I think it's another, you know, bullet in our arsenal to help cope with it. But my view on NAS and its treatment in neonates is probably very different from the rest of the public, right? I see NAS is a treatable and expected complication of a life-saving treatment for mothers who have opiate addiction. In your experience as motherhood being pregnant, is that a strong motivator to um, get mothers to accept and to participate fully in this what you call life-saving treatment? Yes, I think it's uh, an incredible motivator. In, in my experience, I have found um, the drive to protect one's child when you're carrying it is bigger than any other motivator I've seen. So I watch my women who become pregnant participate fully and energetically in my MAT program, even to the point that after they deliver, we often see a slip. The drive to protect their fetus when it's inside them, when they know they're the only one who's, you know, responsible, like they do the right, they try their best to do the right, the most right thing. We didn't know much about Noah's family when he went missing, but pretty soon we started to learn things. First, we found out they lived in a trailer. Later, we learned Noah's sister was born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. We learned there was marijuana in their trailer. When Ashley and Paul were put up at a hotel during the search, we found out there was marijuana discovered in that room as well. People here thought they knew everything they needed to know about Ashley and Paul, even before a social worker testified about Ashley's parenting skills during her trial. We call Opal Squire. Ma'am, please answer the questions of the attorneys, beginning with Mr. Fleeman. Uh, good morning, Ms. Ms. Squires. Would you tell the judge your name and how you're employed, please? Yes, my name is Opal Squires. I'm a CPS investigator and forensic interviewer for Pulaski County Department of Social Services. Here's Opal Squires, the Department of Social Services worker who was put on Ashley's case after Noah's disappearance. Ashley still had an infant child, and even then accusations were starting to roll, so DSS stepped in. Squires testified to meeting Ashley the day Noah went missing. She said Ashley had been written a prescription for Suboxone by a doctor. She also said that Ashley lied about taking Noah and Abigail with her when she took Paul to work 
but later came clean about that. Miss White said that Abigail was sick, that um, Noah was tired, so she had left them at home. Okay. And she told me that Noah was responsible. Okay. Did she actually use that word, responsible? She did, yes. Um, and I explained to her that Noah was five years old and that there's a six-month-old and that there was no way that he needed to be responsible for her. Okay. Did she say anything to you in response to that, um, indicating that that's not what she meant or anything to clarify her earlier statement? No, she didn't. Um, after I said that, I informed her that I was going to, I asked her who she could place Abigail with, um, and she said her mother. And so I said, well, there is going to be no contact um, for neither you nor Paul with the two, with the two children at this point. They asked how long that would be. I stated that it would be as well while the investigation was going on. And at that point, she said, um, just give me the paper. Let me sign it. I'm ready to go. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, uh, um, Ms. Squires. If you'd answer any questions of counsel or the court, please. Ms. Bolger. Thank you. <clears throat> Ms. Squires, you weren't called by law enforcement to respond to Ms. White's residence, were you? I was called by my supervisor. Okay. And your supervisor called you because she had been on Facebook reading about the case. Is that right? She had found out about it through Facebook. Okay. And so that's why you responded? Yes. Okay. Um, when you responded on March 22nd, Ms. White actually volunteered to take a drug test. Is that right? Um, I asked her if she would take one, and she said yes, she would take one. Okay. And you, you stood next to her while she, while she peed in your cup? Yes. Okay. And that drug test was, was negative? For, for all substances? Except for her Suboxone. Except for the prescription Suboxone. Yes, ma'am. It was pretty clear the direction things were headed within minutes of DSS getting involved. Squires described Ashley in a way that made her sound disinterested. She told one story about a supervised visitation session she oversaw between Ashley and her daughter Abigail. Squires testified the visit was scheduled for an hour, but Ashley said she was ready to leave after about 35 minutes. But things sounded much different when we heard from the people who had spent time working with Ashley long before Noah's death, during her drug recovery. Here's her OBGYN doctor, Kimberly Simcox, who runs a similar program to the doctor we talked to earlier, Jennifer Wells. Dr. Simcox, could you please state your name? Uh, Dr. Kimberly Simcox. Okay, and where do you work? At Carillion with OBGYN. Simcox is an OBGYN that specializes in helping drug-addicted mothers. She testified that Ashley voluntarily participated in her program. The program doesn't encourage opioid users to quit cold turkey because that can affect the fetus. She instead recommends use of Suboxone through pregnancy. So it wasn't a surprise Abigail was born with NAS or neonatal abstinence syndrome. And what were her specific challenges that you were able to identify? Um, just uh, continued compliance and uh, not abusing other substances. Okay. And did she continue to comply? Yes, she was compliant in my program. Okay. And she was... Um, drug tested and pill counted just as you kind of narrated every week, every time she saw you? Yes, ma'am. Okay. How would you describe your own relationship with Ashley? Well, I saw Ashley uh, weekly to every other week um, throughout her entire pregnancy. Uh, so we became, I began, I got to know her very well as a patient and a person. Okay. Did she talk to you about her children? Uh, uh, yes, she did. Okay. What did she tell you about her children? Um, she seemed hopeful about her upcoming, pre her upcoming delivery. 
Um, and I did see her child, Noah, at some prenatal visits. She would bring him sometimes. Okay, so you have met Noah on several occasions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, how would you describe him? Um, he was a typical five-year-old. <laughs> okay, did he appear well cared for? Um, yes, he did. Okay. Did Ashley interact with him appropriately? Yes, she did. Okay. Um, at any point, did you ever suspect he was lacking any sort of basic necessities? Uh, no, that was not a concern of mine during when she was when she was pregnant. Okay, and you have a duty to report any suspected child abuse or neglect to social services. Right? Yes, I do. Okay, and have you done that before? Um, with other patients, yes. Okay, did you ever consider doing that for Ashley's children? No, ma'am. Okay, thank you, Dr. Simcox. Those are all the questions I have. Doctor, thank you. Please watch your step as you step down. And is this witness free to go, counsel? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you, ma'am. You are free to go. Call your next witness, please. Your Honor, we call Rhonda Dodson. Rhonda Dodson. Another person who spoke on Ashley's behalf was Rhonda Dodson, a chemical dependency therapist who also worked with Ashley during her recovery. Her counseling program works with many of Simcox's patients as well. Ms. Dodson, could you please state your name? Rhonda Dodson. Um, was, were your conversations with Ashley primarily focused on the substance abuse issues? Uh, they were, but they were also focused on, again, um, she was pregnant. Um, she was talking to me about just her life in general, how she was so happy that she had gotten into treatment and off the street so that she could provide a more stable home life for her family, herself, and for Noah. Do you feel that family support is an important factor throughout this recovery process? I feel like all the support any chemically dependent person has or mentally ill person has is extremely support, important for their recovery. Um, what kind of family support did Ashley have? It sounded to me from the things that Ashley told me that she and her spouse and her son were basically the support for each other. I didn't get a sense that she had a great deal of support other than what I was able to give her. And she spoke very fondly of Dr. Simcox and Dr. Simcox's staff as being very supportive of her. So I felt like it was her immediate family and the support that we were providing her that appeared to mean so much to Ashley. So beyond being supportive, how would you describe the relationship she had with that immediate family, with Paul and Noah at the time? She talked about them often. She talked about how much she loved Noah. She talked about how much she appreciated the fact that she was allowed to stay home. Maybe allowed is not a, the best word, but that Paul was working and that she could stay home, enjoy her pregnancy, and be with Noah. Did she talk to you about any substance abuse issues her partner Paul was struggling with? She never denied the fact that he was smoking marijuana. Did you feel, did you think that was, um, I guess, a, a grounds for noncompliance in the program? Her drug screens were never positive except once, and that was in the very beginning, okay. um, for marijuana. 
and every drug screen after that, and I believe she was screened a total of 24 times. Did she express any concerns or worries to you about her pregnancy, about having a second child in their home? No, she was happy. She wanted so much to have this baby and talked about it often and talked about how they were really excited. Was she frustrated that she had to sort of juggle all of those things of going back to work and the transportation issues? If she, if she was, she really never expressed that to me other than having one car and they were hopeful that at one point they would be able to get another car. Okay. How old was her son Noah when you first began seeing her, if you can recall? He may have been three or four. Okay. Um, did she talk about him with you? Every session. Okay. How would you describe her relationship with him? Adored him. Do you feel that she set healthy boundaries with him based on what she's told you? I did. I did. Um, she told me stories of if, if she had to provide a consequence for him. Um, she talked about it was difficult sometimes because she loved him so much. Um, but she would do it. Do you feel like she was making an effort to be an effective and positive parent in his life? Yes, I do. I really do. But when Ashley appeared in your office on a somewhat regular basis, mm -hmm. it sounds like, um, was she always clean? Hygiene was good. That was always something I looked for in my patients. Mm -hmm. um, hair was clean. Clothes were clean. She was always appropriate. She was always on time. Okay. Um, she never missed an appointment. Did she ever have that that smoker reek? Did she ever reek of cigarette smoke while she was in your office? No. So yeah, how would you describe Ashley's commitment? Ashley was always on time. Um, Ashley passed her drug screens. Um, she appeared to me as if she enjoyed coming to therapy. It was her hour. Why do you think she was so committed to the program? I believe Ashley was beginning to see what a more stable life looked like. She spoke about how wonderful it was to now have more disposable income to buy Christmas gifts, go trick-or-treating, have Thanksgiving dinner, have more income to be able to um, to do all those things as a family. As the trial plays out, you'll understand why this drug addiction and NAS stuff is a really big deal for the case. Most people who will tell you about how much they hate Ashley will also tell you she's a junkie. Dr. Wells, who again has not personally seen Ashley, said that's not terribly surprising. That's what happens to addicts. Is that evidence of child abuse, having a baby born with NAS? I think that's probably a very simplistic, easy way of looking at a very complex disease. Do we look at, you know, overweight um, babies that are struggling with the metabolism of glucose because their mothers have gestational diabetes? Are they criminals? You know, are they bad people? 
No, right? So if, if we're going to look at this, as I do, as a medical illness, then all medical illnesses have to be equal. This one is unfortunate in that substance use disorder, substance dependency, addiction is a medical illness with psychological and behavioral symptoms, right? Outcomes. So most people who have diabetes don't break into the pharmacy to steal their insulin. So, you know, it's it, it's a really complex issue and it 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 covers so many, you know, religious themes, it covers social stigma, it 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 hails from a medical realm. It's difficult, you know, to to say is it fair is it fair to me? Of course not, right? I'm in the trenches with these women. I spend, you know, every day of my life dealing with it, and I know that they would not choose this for themselves. They had no intention of, you know, becoming drug addicts and hanging out and, you know, committing crimes when they picked up whatever that first illicit substance was that maybe led them down the road. There's a diverse you know, number of factors that contributed to them getting to where they are. And it's just too simplistic to say, you know, you're a neglectful mother because your baby was born with NAS. In my mind, you know, that's slander. Do people look at people who, are, who have substance abuse struggles and um, especially in Appalachia where it's pretty common, kind of write them off and kind of judge them a certain way based on that one is that con- like do you see that in oh, your work with people? incredibly con- I see it in my work every day I see it I've sat in with my women sometimes I've had women go into labor who are with me in the office and we walk over to the hospital and I hear the nurses badmouth them behind a curtain I mean some of what I do actively is speak to different departments to sort of raise awareness and to suggest that this is a very far-reaching disease and you know, maybe if we all had a little compassion for one another, that would go a much longer way than the contempt and judgment we often greet this particular disease with. As you heard, Ashley's own doctors testified that she never missed an appointment or failed a drug test. We asked Wells if that's typical. I think over the course of time, the longer I do this, it's very um, common to see slips, right? We see... um, periods of time where women lose their sobriety. Um, It can be a single uh, episode, and I call that sort of a slip, single episode, versus a full-blown relapse, right? You're maybe out and about for a couple weeks, a couple months even. And in that time period, I still continue to see them. They often still uh, show up for group. I rarely lose people. They'll come even with substances on board, even with positive drug screens, and their doses might come down. Some of them might not even get buprenorphine anymore, but if they come every week, I will keep I will keep with you until we can get back on uh, the horse again. And if they, you know, we try to get social supports and stuff. So someone who never had a slip, never, you know, had a positive drug screen, you know, showed up for group is remarkably consistent. Is is uh, you know the perfection in in my program <laughs> is what I'm looking to achieve. And I have a couple of those, but not many, less than ten percent. Is there anything else that, that, that you want to you know, talk through? I don't, it's, I don't know. It's a big topic. It is a big topic. It's a really big topic. And it, like, I, you know, I want to sort of be balanced, but of course, my heart is with, 
you know, the population that I serve, and I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't deeply believe in doing it. But, I mean, time and again, I'm confronted with the stigma and judgment of our community over medical facts, sound reasoning, and compassion. So I, I wish people would open their hearts a little bit to look at at this more critically because it's not a simple issue and it affects every one of us. Every one of us only has to reach out their arm to touch somebody who's suffering from a problem whether you know it or not. Right? It's in all our families. It's everywhere now. That's my stick. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate yeah. your Septic is produced by Robbie Korth and me, Jacob Demet. Music comes to us courtesy of Mike Gangoff and Matt Payton. All courtroom audio is obtained from the Pulaski County Circuit Court Clerk's Office after a request to Judge Bradley Finch. This podcast is about presenting an accurate account of the death of Noah Thomas and his parents' legal saga. All audio has been edited for brevity and clarity. For pictures, original documents, and other extras, visit septicpodcast.com. And feel free to send us any feedback at septic at roanoke.com. This is a copyrighted podcast of the Roanoke Times. All rights reserved. Contents may not be disseminated without permission. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Like I said, there will eventually be seven in this series, uh, dropping every week right here. So make sure that you are subscribed wherever you get your shows to guarantee that you'll get the latest installments as they premiere. Once you're subscribed, help yourself to our archives, uh, where you'll find other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. You can find links to relevant articles from the Roanoke Times in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. Thank you so much.